Would you love to get on the fast track to implementing professional services effectively without all the mistakes and without wasting time and money? Well, you're in luck. We're joined by Jared McMoore this week, who's been implementing professional services successfully since the third pharmacy agreement where he implemented the pharmacy asthma medication service. He's going to share with you all of his tips and tactics, all his best strategies of setting up your space, what people you'll need, what technology you can use, and how to price your professional services effectively. Welcome to the Transformation Show, where successful pharmacy owners and technology partners help you to build a better 21st century pharmacy by embracing technology. Here is your host, Robert Starr. G'day everyone and welcome back to Transformation, the only dedicated podcast in the world where pharmacy and technology collide to bring you, the motivated pharmacy owner, all that you need to build your smarter, more successful 21st century business before it's too late. My name's Robert Starr, your host and guide on this fantastic journey of ours, all the way through to episode 83. Big show today. I'm going to try my absolute best to keep this intro as short as possible. We have so much to share with our guest this week, Jared McMoore. As you've heard with our intro, we go really, really deep into the strategies, the tips and tactics that he has used personally in implementing professional services, even as far back as the third community pharmacy agreement. He goes into so much detail that I know you will simply walk away with a number of pages and notes and a lot of insights as to how you can best implement professional services, but more on that very, very shortly. How's your week been? Has it been a good one? Mine's been a super busy one, as you may have noticed through the different social circles, and if you're on the Transformation Magazine list as well, the issue three came out on uh, Tuesday as well. Um, Tuesday? Was it Wednesday? It was Wednesday. I do apologize. It was uh, the 30th of September. And we've got a jam-packed issue of disruption. And I don't say that lightly just because Richard Branson's on the cover, but it really goes deep into some really, really strong issues and really getting into the insights and actionable strategies that you can take advantage of to disrupt your pharmacy before it becomes disrupted. We'd all love to take advantage of that and certainly put our destiny in our own hands rather than leaving it to chance. And one of the greatest articles we do have is one that Robert Allen has written around the actionable insights he has found with a six CPA and what you can do, but also using the two biggest platforms in the world, Google and Facebook, how you can leverage the power of that in your pharmacy as well. Goes really, really deep. So I hope you've picked that up already. If you haven't, special link coming your way is robertstar.com forward slash free magazine. And when you do that, you don't need to get back into email to find the email to click through to the magazine. You'll go straight into the magazine. But when you do get the email, you'll get a whole range of exclusive bonuses worth over $400, which will include things like a copy of the Transformation eBook, full video access to some of my best keynote presentations, and also a seven-day pharmacy automation 
study tour. Massively requested last year and it's proven really popular, particularly if you're not thinking about automation right now, but you're thinking in the future model of pharmacy that you'd love to create how you can do it. And we go into deep strategy there of what you can do even before you even go visiting pharmacies to get your workflow right to make sure it slots right in as well. I know you'll love it. And to access that, all you need to do is grab that link that I shared a little bit earlier, robertstar.com forward slash free magazine. Just before we head across to Jared, I wanted to share one little insight and you'll get an understanding of that probably from the quality of the audio, which isn't bad. I'm not at all saying that. It's just a little bit slightly different. I had to get it tuned up finally, but it's because we had to use a different platform. As some of you may have noticed, uh, Skype, which is where we record most of our interviews, which are virtual cups of coffee, um, and that was down last week. And uh, rather than having to reschedule and work that out, we'd all block, both Jared and I had blocked out the hour to do that. We simply just change platforms because in this world of technology, we need to have a backup plan. And as you might have even noticed earlier this week, Facebook was down. So for businesses that are using Facebook as their website, oh boy, they're in trouble because no one can access that because it's on rented ground. So my point with mentioning both these examples for you and what you can take away from that is that there's so much power in technology, but... We need to have redundancy and backup plans in place to ensure there's no disruption to what you do. So in our case, we couldn't have had this interview if we didn't have a backup plan and we went across to go to meeting. But in your case, three examples that I've thought of, which would be really practical if you're not already utilizing them, is with your internet connection, you should have a prepaid dongle uh, or USB um, device that you can plug in uh, to your network if you do happen to go down. And what that enables you to do is to get keep your internet connected services up and running. So whether that be your integrated FPOS, whether it be PBS Online, online resources, or your other core access um, to references, um, systems like your accounting system, you can do all of that if your internet has to go happens to go down. And I recommend you do that with a different provider to what your internet connection is normally with. And it can be prepaid uh, and usually there's a long expiry on the data there so it won't cost you a huge recurring fee but it's great insurance to have in this internet connected world the second one is around backups and passwords so make sure obviously that you've got a backup that you're running every night but be that a cloud backup so that if you do happen to lose your usb drives or you don't plug it in you don't do it it happens automatically and it should be standard practice in most pharmacies and the third one is with your fpos so that's a massive one because the biggest proportion of our sales come through electronic transactions now. And if your FPOS is down, you may as well be telling customers to go to your competition. So what you need there is a backup plan. And there are a couple of options. Uh, the banks and the merchant facilities can provide you uh, with a unit that is connected through 4G and 3G, just like that modem I spoke about a little bit earlier. Um, and you can operate those independently of your fixed line internet being working or vice versa. Um, or even PayPal have these mobile units again, but the fees are slightly higher. So I'd only advise that if you absolutely need it, um, but it can be very, very useful as well. So there's some three tips and just make sure that you keep backups in your planning to make sure that you don't ever fall over because of a technology failure, which will happen 
But of course, we know that the massive improvement that we get as a result dwarves into comparison. Enough from me. We're going to head across to Jared, and I'm sure you'll love our chat. So much strategy, so make sure you get your notebooks out and jot everything down. Our interview today is with Jared McMoore. He's a community pharmacist who is interested in developing and expanding the role for pharmacists through professional services. He is so passionate about community pharmacy and professional services to maximise our role and positioning in primary health care. Jared McMoore, welcome to the Transformation Show. Okay, Robert, thanks for having me. Uh, look, great to have you on, Jared. And I know we spent a couple of days over PBN talking about a lot to do with professional services, which is certainly the key to the future of Australian community pharmacy. And uh, I know it's an area you're very, very passionate about. And uh, I know our listeners will be in for a great treat today to hear your experiences of how you've implemented it successfully in your pharmacies. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely an area that I'm, I'm passionate about. And I feel it's very important for the future of, of community pharmacy in Australia. Uh, now, very good. Now, back to the beginning when you first got into pharmacy, I guess, uh, you know, how did you get started and, uh, you know, why are you so passionate about this particular moment in pharmacy in Australia? Sure. Um, so I've been in pharmacy for about 15 years, I guess. Um, I went to school in Wagga. Um, I was interested in medicine a long time and I had quite a young family around the time of uh wanting to get into university, so I thought pharmacy certainly suited me as far as being able to um, focus on medicine and still being able to focus on my family at the same time. So it sort of suited me really well, and I'm, I'm quite interested in, um, in helping patients understand, understand that's probably the biggest thing, is how they understand what their medical needs are and what their treatments are, and um, that's, I think, really what attracted me to pharmacy in the first place. Um, but yeah, I, at the moment I'm, I'm very interested in getting the, uh, the professional services in pharmacy moving along so that pharmacists can really realise their full potential as uh, health professionals. Yeah, no, look, it's certainly an evolutionary area and it's something that, uh, you know, certainly going back a couple of generations, I'm a second generation pharmacist, professional services was certainly uh, not an opportunity for my father um, getting through his career. So, you know, it's certainly something that's, uh, you know, still quite young when we think about it, probably, uh, you know, a little bit younger than the internet, of course, but, uh, you know, certainly technology akin to this show has, uh, you know, a big role and is technology something that you see playing a big role in pharmacy? moving forward? Absolutely. I think technology the technology will play a key role in uh, in professional services getting through pharmacy. One, makes it so much more accessible and so much easier to uh, supply in pharmacy. So, for instance, one of the services that I supply is um, spirometry. Now, clinical spirometry 20 years ago or 25 years ago involved sitting in a quite a large room with very large devices. Um, that are impossible to replicate in the pharmacy. And the spirometer that I use um, is, you know, no bigger than a, um, a Nintendo handset. So very, very small, compact, uh, simple to use, uh, and those kind of things are going to help us get professional services um, in pharmacy working the way we want them to. And in addition, it's about freeing up the staff. You know? We, we're now working in an area where our dispensaries can be very well managed and run by our technicians. They, do, they can do all of the physical work for us, 
and their expertise in being able to put a script together and identifying what's important for us to see means that we can be out working with patients directly and um, not having to put our um, our expertise back into the back line of the pharmacy instead we can be at the front. So those things are, um, are really what's driving, I think, the move into the area of professional services. Yeah, and look, there's certainly so many different uh, tasks that as pharmacists we shouldn't be doing. And uh, I know that uh, one of our previous guests on the show, Peter Ferros, in episode 31 has a list of 10, but I think we could probably go all the way up to 50 so that we can really maximise our highest value opportunities. But I guess with professional services, you know, your your first experience was uh, back in the third uh, community pharmacy agreement. And I imagine, you know, what you mentioned spirometry there, was it the first one in asthma that you got started in? Yes, so back in the third agreement they had the PAMS, the Pharmacy Asthma Management Service, and they had, I think it was DMAS was the other one, which was the diabetic one. So my colleague took over the diabetes um, service because there was quite a lot of work involved at that time. It was you know early days and trying to figure out how a pharmacy could provide a service. So um, my colleague took over the diabetes side and I did the asthma side. I had quite an interest in, in respiratory health and, um, and uh, like having done... Um, some electives at university around asthma specifically, so it sort of it fit right in with me, and and it was really interesting getting in, involved with it back then because a lot of pharmacists had, really had no idea about it, and that may have contributed to the way that those two services didn't really proceed through government funding, but um, they certainly led to something like say the MedSec program, which is is great. So there was some question there from the third community agreement, and. Um, after that, I went on and got a few more qualifications in respiratory health and uh, was able to develop uh, the information and the tools that they gave me in that um, program to design a way of offering a spirometry service and a, a respiratory education service, different tiered levels of service of those programs to patients in a way that they're willing to pay for it. And so that, that's a privately um, patient-funded service that you're running? Completely, yes. So we sort of have a three-tiered um, uh, service. We have uh, a sit-down, one-on-one consultation that's similar in idea, I suppose, to a meds check, but far shorter because you're focusing on their medications that are, you know, you might have one or two, you know, their short-acting beta agonist plus their um, in-alcoico steward and, and long-acting beta agonist combination. So you might sit down and talk to them about that for, like, say, 10 minutes. Um, and charge them a fee very similar to a prescription fee. And then we have uh, sort of a second line service where we do go a bit more in depth and talk about, um, say, peak flow meters or being able to monitor their asthma over a longer period of time and getting a better handle on what's going on. And then the third tier service is actually doing the spirometry, which is more for, we sort of aim that at patients that are buying a lot of over-the-counter um, salbutamol, for instance, clearly not understanding the role of asthma in their life and, and how it's uh, how it's going to impact on their future. So we use that as a motivational tool. We can show them the results that they're getting and, and give them an idea of, you know, here is your lung function now and it should improve uh, if you were to control it better. And we get a lot of referrals from uh, local GPs, um, especially for patients that need um, spirometry for um, applications to new jobs. People doing fly-in, fly-out, for instance, a lot of people doing that need to have uh, a clear spirometry test. So our GPs refer to us because they're not really remunerated well enough through Medicare 
and the patient's willing to pay a private fee to a pharmacy, it seems, not always willing to pay the private fee to the doctor's surgery, which is interesting. Yeah, and, and I imagine, you know, with most, you know, private services, you know, I can hear a lot of our colleagues probably thinking right at the moment, you know, how, how do we know that, you know, our community would want that? And as you're sharing with us there, you know, it requires a fair bit of buy-in and, you know, that referral network that uh, that you mentioned. And was it something that, you know, your through your relationships with the local doctors came to you and said, look, this is a service that we need? Or were you able just to spot that opportunity just from, you know, the everyday chats with patients yeah so the way we had this was sort of a bit of a um, it came from both ends we were given the opportunity due to my experience and access to the device um, which we got through the PAM service um, secondly uh, you see clearly a lot of patients who are not coping with their asthma very well so as a business we can see a need for a service that the patient may not recognize themselves so from that point of view, we created the um, the demand in our patients by explaining to them how they're not getting the best fit from the medications, and we also created the demand by approaching the local doctors, explaining to them what we have available, reassuring them that it was a good reproducible service, not just some, you know, not for instance, just using a peak flow meter to try and say, hey, your uh, your lung function is poor. We're actually using a, a reproducible method of, of getting clinical data that the doctors could then use as they saw fit um, for their patients. So it was sort of in this particular service, it was from multiple multiple areas coalescing, I guess, into uh, a clear idea for what service was necessary you know, for our patients. And, and was it really just, I guess, to you know ensure the effectiveness of the asthma plan that was carried out, and you were monitoring, I guess, the the changes or you know swings that may occur, you know, from week to week or surrounding certain triggers. I, I know, um, having had uh, you know a small involvement in in PAMS, uh, probably in the fourth agreement, I think it was that uh, I had a look at that, and we did some spirometry training that uh, we weren't allowed to go outside of the scope of the spirometry to you know, diagnose or recommend to the GPs that there was any restriction or something akin to, um, you know, any fibrosis in the lungs or even go down the pathway of getting patients to do a challenge test with their uh, beta 2 agonist. But, you know, to what extent um, have, you, have you been able to collaborate with the GPs um, that they were, they were happy with? Okay, so the first thing is we don't offer a diagnosis and that's not appropriate for us to do. Even, even if I had the qualification to be able to say this is a clear diagnosis of a condition, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to do so. It's really something for their GP um, to do because that's what collaborative care is about. We work with the, um, the GPs and the patients. So in the case of somebody who comes to us and they're clearly not seeing their doctor, we would offer that service if they never had seen a GP and then we would say this information is quite important, you need to collaborate with your GP and, and go that way and, and see somebody on a regular basis get this condition fixed because currently you're in denial about it. Um, as far as um, doing the, um, the challenge test, we certainly do that with patients. Um, it's, it's clearly the only way that we can demonstrate a, an alteration in their lung function by using a, a beta 2 agonist. So um, that is something that I do do with the patients and, and I'm quite comfortable doing that with them. And, it's clear to the patients right from the start that we're not offering a diagnostic service. So what we're trying to do is offer data 
um, that the patient, that the doctor can um, interpret for the patient and give them a, a feedback on what is the best thing to do. Um, yeah, so that's that's the the main focus of mm. doing it that way. We're trying as much as we can not to duplicate anything that doctor would already be offering, offering, and it's heavily about integrating patients who are not in the health system back into the health system to get better care. Yeah, yeah, and, and it always has to be, I guess, in that collaborative centre. And I suppose that's where, you know, sometimes as pharmacists we do get uh, questioned by our medical colleagues as to whether we're stepping on toes. But, you know, where there's, a, I guess, a clear delineation in our role in those protocols and the treatment pathways, um, you know, it's very easy for everyone to understand, I guess, where everyone fits and can help each other. Yeah, it's, it really is about making sure that patients are getting the best care. And in this instance, if it's about raising a patient's awareness that they actually need care as opposed to assuming that this is going to get better one day and I can just ignore it, it'll go away. You know, getting them to see their doctor on a regular basis or even the first interaction, getting them to see the doctor for the first time about something, that I consider to be a success. Yeah. Uh, if it can get a patient to understand that this is not a, uh, something that's going to go away, then, then we've done our job in part. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No. That's a, it's just a great, great example that you share. But I guess as we go through into the six CPA now, there are certain services that are now going to be continually funded, uh, but there's going to be some scoping around some some newer ones. And uh, I guess to, to really maximise opportunity, I know a lot of colleagues are looking at, well, you know, maybe a one or two person pharmacy and, uh, you know, that professional services pharmacist role has become increasingly popular. Um, so, you know, I guess what are you seeing as the biggest opportunities for pharmacy through the six CPA with potentially these new ones that will get scoped out? But, you know, what do pharmacies need to be looking at to make it happen and maximise their success in store? Sure. Okay, so there's a few different things there that I'd like to talk about. One is um, funding through the six CPA. I, I'm very strongly of the opinion that we need to have services that are sustainable without government funding. And if you get government funding for them, then great. If that, if that allows you to make your service temporarily more viable or allows you to build a base uh, you know, to cover your costs to begin with, they like an initial outlay investment, like it might be needed to buy a spirometer or a bone density ultrasonography device or something along those lines, then fair enough. If there's government funding to do that, then, then do it. But people um, in the situation where um, they're relying on government funding to keep service viable will eventually see an end to that service because government funding usually has an expiry date on it and we can't rely on that. Um, one of the things that I would really like to see as far as 6 CPA funding, and, and especially that large chunk of money that the PSA helps negotiate and get included as far as new uh, new services in the future. Um, I've heard, I've seen people on on Twitter and on Facebook sometimes saying, you know, we've got this funding. What are we going to do with it? Who's going to come up with the ideas? And my answer to that is, individual community pharmacy needs to come up with those ideas. And all it comes down to is um, pharmacies who who have an idea for a service, see a need for a service, they should come up with concepts, design what they think would work, you know, and, and then maybe contact tertiary institutions that have pharmacy schools in it, for instance. I know that um, Charles Sturt University has some lecturers there that are quite interested and have patients doing 
honours and PhDs in services and they could utilise that information to help them and then they can create a case to take to the six CPA funding and say let's, uh, let's fund this service, let's roll it out, scale it up and make it visible for patients wherever they go. Um, as, as far as selecting the service that uh, a pharmacist should go with, I've, I've got a few bits of advice regarding that but it's always going to be down to what is best for your business. Um, but one of the things you should do is look around and see what is working well for others. And if there's a particular type of service that seems to do very well, then that's probably the area that you should start with because you've got an established um, model. Um, so one that comes to mind there is uh, sleep apnea services. So there's really, really good services available where the pharmacy is the point of um, contact between a patient in their care so they can have a home diagnostic test done. That information is sent to a sleep specialist to be uh, um, interpreted and then the patient can see the sleep specialist directly or they can have a, a consultation meeting uh, under the direction of the sleep specialist and are able to then provide the care required to keep, help that patient get better. So that kind of thing I think is, is always going to be a smart idea in pharmacy. You know, look at what other people are doing well and see if you can modify that for your area, if that makes sense. Yeah, look, every different community pharmacy is going to have a different specialisation, a different community group, and it's, you know, something that we have spoken a few times on the show about in terms of, you know, utilising, I guess, not only your active listening in the pharmacy, but also sometimes your data that uh, helps you to, you know, negotiate around certain trends and, uh, you know, pick up yeah. certain services that may be related to high volumes of product that you may you may sell. So I guess in, you know, picking those those services, um, particularly for a pharmacy that may only be, you know, just very early stages of rolling out professional services, would you be recommending that they look at, you know, perhaps one service initially or perhaps there's, you know, opportunities to do more than one at the same time? I think, so there's a few different things. It really will depend on your, um, on your manpower. So workflow is going to be important. If you can't get your workflow in a standard dispensing pharmacy working well, then you should address that first. That's one thing. Secondly, um, if you've got a, a pharmacy that doesn't have access to two pharmacists all the time, then that doesn't mean that you can't do services, but you have to make sure you structure that in a way that is not going to compromise your ability to do both. There's no point trying, for instance, to book appointments in the middle of rush hour. You'll, uh, you'll get so much stress that you'll never get anything done. But um, the idea is, is if, if you can focus on one thing first, especially for your first service, and focus on it and get it right, or be able to identify when you're not getting it right and understand what's going wrong, then you'll do well. And then you'll be able to scale up and look at new services that you feel could, could work well. Um, so it really is important to look at your demographics and what areas your pharmacy do well. Um, as an example of this, I saw uh, a service being described when I was at the recent um, PSA 15 um, event. There was a pharmacy that had quite a number of young parents in the region. They had a, quite a good uh, section for baby care. And they actually designed a service for uh, mothers, new mothers to be able to come in into their consultation room 
and they could actually provide a sample of milk and it could be analysed in the pharmacy and it, they could be given advice about the nutritional content, for instance, um, of their milk, which I, I was blown away. I thought it was such a unique service to offer uh, and really, really interesting. They had a centrifuge in the pharmacy that they could help separate out and be able to um, analyse the milk that, uh, that they were given. It was, it was really unique, I thought, and a really good example of somebody identifying an area where they could create a service around that. It was very niche and they've created such a, a following in their pharmacy from, from these young families in the area. So being, being able to identify what your patients actually need will pay off when you're designing the services. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, one of the biggest issues, and you touched on, on it there as well, is if you are a pharmacist that, uh, you know, at this point in time, you may look at the numbers as they present themselves right now and you think, oh, if I'm going to do a professional service, you know, how am I going to dispense at the same time? And, you know, I think it's a, it's a common story sometimes that, uh, you know, we then think, well, perhaps we could uh, only, you know, employ someone once we've grown that service, but in, in essence, it may require... You know that additional personnel, or like you mentioned there, just being a little bit smarter about booking it in at at different times. And and I guess on that, um, you know, often you know every successful service that we tend to run in pharmacy often involves the entire team. And you know how best have, have you utilised um, team members to support you as a pharmacist delivering delivering these services? And you know what type of roles have you have you looked to you know employ um, in in those people? Yeah, absolutely. So the team is really, really important um, the, for various different reasons. And it's important as well to have redundancy as much as you can. So if you have multiple pharmacists working in the pharmacy, my advice would be to make sure that they can all provide the services that are on offer. It's, it's fine to have somebody come in on the shift and be, I am the services pharmacist for today, um, but swap it around and make sure that the different pharmacists uh, get the ability to provide that service because the last thing you need is a day where you've got a fully booked day and that pharmacist is unwell. Um, so all of your staff should be involved in at least understanding what services you offer. You have to make sure your, patient, your staff understand that because if you have, even your junior staff, if your junior staff don't know what services are available and somebody comes in and they're the only contact that patient has with the pharmacy and say, uh, do you offer this service here? And they go, oh, I, I think so. I, I'm not really sure. I can't help you. Sorry. Then that service is lost. And you're, um, there was a comment made at the PBN over the weekend, your business is only as strong as your most junior Sunday staff. So, and that is really, really important with these kind of services, providing services as well. Um, you, it's really a good idea to have um, like a champion or a hero. It's different different groups call them different things, but somebody who is really um, understanding what the service the pharmacist is going to provide and is able to um, maintain uh, a good level of enthusiasm about the service, help the other staff remember that the service is available and when they see a patient that may benefit from that service, they'll usually be the one that's bringing it up or have you heard about this or have you read this information before or how do you feel this condition is going for you. So having somebody in that position is really good. But um, uh, probably the last the last step as well is your dispensary technicians. 
So I mentioned before, we want you know technology is allowing our dispensary technicians to look after the the physical side of putting a script together and, and keeping us out with patients. But in addition to that, if you've got programs, say like the Guild Care program, or if they're understanding of what medications you're focusing on for your service, uh, if they have a good understanding of what's going on, they can help flag and identify patients for you. Um, so listen, have a look at this patient's history. They may not be doing so well with this particular class of medication. Maybe that service that you're offering would be ideal for them. So involving every member of your team, uh, at least at the level of understanding what the service available is, is critical to the survival of that service. Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned tools like, like Guild Care. Are there any other tools that you use on an everyday basis, I guess, you know, and also the team as well to, I guess, help to triage and, you know, I guess, automate certain parts of that workflow? Sure. So as far as pharmacy specific, Guild Care I, I use a lot. Um, sometimes it's a little bit slower than I would like, but uh, I really do use it a lot. It's, it's certainly very, very critical to a lot of the services um, that I offer, right down from, you know, so for my respiratory services that we offer, it's something as simple as this patient, you know, has been getting their inhalers for a while. Let's do an inhaler check with them and make sure that they understand that the basic operation of their device that they're using is good, um, right through to being able to record um, your blood pressure monitoring for patients and other things like that. So guilt care is, in my opinion, is very, very useful. It's certainly worth the subscription fee, I think. Um, I use another website called Lattice, which is L-A-T-T-I-S-S. So it's a, an online uh, booking program. And you can go in there and you can set specifically, this is the service I'm going to offer, and this is the amount of time that it will allocate. And then it gives you a calendar. And you can book online from anywhere um, patients into certain times of the day that you've set aside for services. So that particular one I find useful. I, I'm fairly confident that there are others around that would do the same thing, um, but it just happens to be the one that I use. Um, the other software that I use a lot is the NetAdvisor program, I think is, is quite useful as well because you can use that as a marketing tool. You know, you'll have patients um, that are happy to receive communications via their app and you can send them information. Um, when they request their prescription to be filled, you can send a message back and saying, listen, you've been getting your, again, sticking with the respiratory, you've been getting your insulin filled quite often, you haven't had your um, in our corticosteroid filled recently, maybe we should dis discuss this next time we're in the pharmacy. Um, and then that gives you the open door because they'll either say, oh, no, I got one filled at another pharmacy when I saw the doctor, it's okay, it's good. Or, yes, actually, I haven't been doing it. And, um, I really do need to speak about that because I feel that my asthma is not well controlled. So various different programs and software that you can get access to. And I mean, there's obviously other versions of those things like um, Fred's, um, Fred's bringing up their, their ones soon if they haven't already for being able to contact the pharmacy directly as well. So anything that allows you to access the patient directly and gives you far more control than just a phone call or a text message um, is always going to be useful for these services.
Mm. And what about also the, from a clinical notes perspective? Um, <clears throat> I know also from a, a decision support as well. We spoke uh, only recently with Debbie Rigby about the need for some of the pharmacy software to have that built into it. And obviously at the moment it's not built in, so we're utilising other tools and other references to help us do that. So, you know, specifically uh, we stick with your respiratory service. You know, what, what do you use to, I guess, capture the clinical notes and also some of the decision support? tools that you use? Sure. So I store as much data as I can in my dispensing software. It's not perfect and certainly there are no decision support tools in there beyond standard dispensing. Um, and I just, I just, while I'm talking about that, it, it really does need to be acknowledged that dispensing itself is a professional and clinical service and any pharmacist who is sort of um, not really con contemplating that, you know, if they're just literally being very robotic and, and sending out scripts, they're sort of missing a big opportunity there to be involved clinically in their patient's care. But um, I saw a lot of data in Fred, uh, for instance, when I can, and I store a lot of data in uh, Guild Care as well. Um, but there's never really going to be enough uh, space there until our dispensing software is evolving in a manner that allows us to take more information in. That perhaps will become less critical if we can integrate uh, a electronic health record, you know, what, what NEDA is working on. Whether it's patient controlled or not patient controlled is up for debate, but um, something along those lines will give us a lot more flexibility for storing the data. Um, as far as decision tools, it's a bit harder. The guild care is obviously clearly a good one, uh, based just on dispensing history. Um, I would really love the ability to talk to um, the people who design it and say, listen, here's, here's a service that I offer on a regular basis. What is the option of being able to design a module around that so I can record the data directly in there without having to you know, use it as a, uh, a patient interaction or something like that? Um, that kind of thing I think would be great and I would love to see development in that area. Uh, mm. It would make life a lot simpler. I think certainly Guildcare is probably, you know, one of the spaces in that. I've noticed a number of different privately run services that they have offered and, you know, it could be one perhaps that they can include in the not too distant future where it's build your own and there's a set of, you know, basic features of uh, note recording and all of those types of things because, you know, certainly uh, keeping data in, you know, non-secure things like spreadsheets and uh, Word documents and things like that on pharmacy servers is, uh, certainly probably not going to be complying with their privacy uh, obligations, no. but uh, certainly, you know, if you have to make do, then uh, then I've often seen that. But I guess for, for our listeners, Jared, who, you know, maybe, you know, I, I guess perhaps, you know, at the beginning of their professional services journey, and, you know, I would hope that the majority have at least tried one or two um, in previous, you know, Guild government agreements and, you know, perhaps even looked at some private ones where they may have in the past had, uh, you know, a, a naturopath or even a, a diabetes educator or a baby nurse as well. But, you know, for, for the, in terms of starting out, you know, what's the most critical thing to, to get right first? You know, we often think, well, every Every, everything that we put into a pharmacy from a merchandise perspective, we create a perfect space on a wall or a gondola. So, you know, is it about dedicating, you know, that space or a consulting room, you know, first up so that you can, you know, set yourself apart from, you know, any other pharmacy who might be trying to run it off the back of a dispensing bench? 
Sure, absolutely. Okay, so firstly, if you don't have a, a dedicated space, then you're never going to get it right. You certainly can't do most clinical services without privacy. If you can't maintain the patient's privacy directly, then you shouldn't do it. There's, there's no doubt about that. If you try and do a professional service without the ability to do privacy, then you're doing nobody a favour and you're actually putting things backwards. So that's the first thing. If you were looking at doing a refit anytime soon, I would absolutely consider doing a consultation room. There's no doubt about that. The benefit that you get from it, I think, will pay for itself. The As far as actually having a private space in a shop that can't really have a, a refit, or you know, you've just had one and you can put one in or something along those lines, there are modular um, consultation rooms that you can get. Um, I, I do know that Sigma offers one to their Amcal Guardian pharmacies, but, and uh, I believe the company was uh, Instigo that spoke at TBN. They, they have, I believe, modular ones, but I, I could be incorrect. Um, so having the private space is very, very important. If for nothing else, then you're going to be speaking to people about private information to do with their health. And firstly, you want to keep that safe, and secondly, you want them to trust to give you all that information. If you can't get all of the relevant information about somebody's health when you're trying to help the health, you're never going to be able to do the job properly. Um, so that's the first thing. I would absolutely make sure you've got a space. If you don't have a space, um, you're not going to do well. And I would really, really hope that people don't use a storeroom. If you try and convert a storeroom, then the patient will know that. As soon as they walk into the, what is clearly a storeroom, you're no longer professional because they're not thinking you're professional anymore. So that would be the first thing, is making sure you've got the space. Um, having the staffing is also going to be very, very important. We've sort of covered that a bit already, but literally having enough people to cover it. And if, if it's a one pharmacist pharmacy and you have access to take on a locum for a bit of time or even maybe even hire somebody for one day, maybe they've got three or four days a week somewhere else and they just need to pick up a date somewhere, you could bring them on you know, and invest and take a bit of a risk in investing into the wages there for somebody to try and make a new service happen. But as far as starting out and knowing where to start, realistically you have to understand that services are not one size fits all and they're certainly not the same as each other. There are so many different types of services as there are physical product, pro products in a standard pharmacy. You know, you can't compare the cosmetic section to your analgesic section. They're two different beasts and a lot of services are the same. You can't look at one service and compare it to another service and say, well, that should work or that one works. You have to understand what your demographic is, what you're trying to do, and what your, um, what your um, motivation behind doing it is and how it's going to interact with the patient. So, um, for instance, we, we've offered in this pharmacy bone density screenings where there was quite an expensive device being used to check the bone density of somebody's os calcis, the heel bone. And this was quite um, a very reliable device, but still only a screening service. You can't run that every day of the week. If you had that available all the time, it would take up so much space that um, it would be a waste. It really would be a waste. So you would offer that service, say, one or two weeks at a time every few months and run it on cycle. Whereas other services like um, the spirometry or sleep apnea services or quit smoking motivational counselling. You can do that ad hoc. patient comes to you and says, I really want to do this. And you can say, I've got the time right now, let's do it. Or I've got the time tomorrow morning at, at 9am, let's book an appointment. So you've got to understand the way that the patient is going to interact with the pharmacy 
when they're doing that. Um, one of the things that I really recommend people do is they have to look at any new service as if it was a new range being introduced into their pharmacy because I think pharmacists, managers and owners understand looking at a range. If you were told that we would like to put in this range of products but in doing so you have to invest X amount of dollars in stock and you have to invest in the space where that stock is going to be stored both out on the floor and in the dispenser, no, sorry, in the storeroom, then you, you can conceptualise that. That's a, a decision that pharmacists pharmacy managers and owners make regularly. So coming up with a, a service, you have to be able to look at it like that and say what are the costs that are going to be involved outside of the money. You know, It's not going to be just the investment in buying a device or the investment in the staff training in order to make that pharmacist qualified enough to provide the service. You know, you have to be able to say how much space we put inside and what are we losing from taking that space. So. These are the sort of considerations that people have to have when they're first looking in a, a service for the first time. Um, and, I'm, and I imagine akin to the, you know, the product analogy as well, you know, you quite often look at the space that's dedicated to a new range, you look at the investment of stock and, uh, you know, how it's going to be promoted and, uh, you know, certainly launched to the local community as well. Um, but at the same time, you know, as I, as I could probably hear the thoughts of a few colleagues listening in, the pricing element and the return on investment is certainly, you know, that key consideration at the moment. And certainly, you know, by the very nature of the diverse six CPA agreement, there is going to be some funding still available for professional services. So if people want to maximise what they get from the agreement, they need to be, you know, taking up professional services where they're relevant and useful to them. But for the private services, you know, how do they determine, you know, what to charge? And, you know, would you advise testing those prices early stages before you consolidate them? Yes, absolutely. So, one of the things that the 6CPA um, money that we may or may not get for certain services, depending, that's sort of a, a double-edged sword because you're, let's say there's a service that's funded. The government says, we're going to fund this particular service. Every pharmacy in the country can put that in their shop. So that gives you guaranteed money there to start the program, but not necessarily guaranteed money to continue it. Um, whereas when you're designing a private service, you're taking a risk and whether it works or not is based totally on whether you can make it work. So there's sort of a, a level of professional satisfaction about making that happen. Um, there are various things you have to uh, look at as far as the investment is concerned. So when you're pricing your service, you have to look at what outlay did you have to do to get it. So um, buying a spirometer and doing the training might set you back $2,500 for instance, and maybe you've got to buy a laptop as well. So maybe it's $3,000. Now you have to make a decision. Are you recouping that cost every time you charge the patient? Or is that an investment like buying a new computer to go in the dispensary or investing in the rental of a Fuji machine if you're still doing films, you know, which is something that many owners may still remember having those in their shops. So you've got to understand how are you going to recoup the cost. Are you just going to purely base the cost of the service on the time it takes for the pharmacist to do the service and investing in the whatever hardware involved is just a, a capital investment. Um, in my estimation, and this is only an estimation, every pharmacy would have to do their own math, speak to your accountant, speak to your bank manager if, if you do need to, but realistically my estimation, um, most 
professional services would be valued about $2 a minute. Um, and what you have to look at is the value that the patient is going to see in that service. So uh, a really uh, cognitive uh, type service where it's no investment in, in devices, for instance. Let's say it's purely a, I'm going to educate these patients who are not dealing with their diabetes very well. I'm going to sit them down and give them a private version of a, of a medscheck. And that's all the service is going to entail and it's purely time and space. Um, that could be worth, you know, half an hour's time. It could be a $60 service, for instance, based on that. But does that mean the patient values that at $60? So realistically, you've got to come up with a math decide how much every minute is worth, decide how much time that service should take most of the time, and then look at your final result and say, if I was a patient and my, my diabetes is not coping very well, do I value that service that much? You know, is it a situation where the patient doesn't think that their condition is all that dangerous? Or are they worried that I'm so out of control and I'm fearful of going blind or losing the foot, for instance. Now, that's what it comes down to when you're pricing your service. You've got to look at what it actually costs you and what the, uh, the patient is realistically going to want to pay for your time. And over time, I expect, as more pharmacies do these services, patients will come to value the pharmacist's time and we will be able to get a fairer and fairer price to everybody involved because you know, patients will come to expect services in pharmacy that are privately paid for and then potentially third parties will come on board. Like we might get a situation where one of the insurance companies values a, a very specific service that has been shown to be of value and reproducible and then you know, we get more funding that way. So gradually over time I think it will get better but that's sort of my ballpark way of working out what your service is going to be worth. Mm. And and certainly, you know, it's, it, you know, we, we're getting to that point now where you know the transaction and supply model of pharmacy is dying, if not dead. And uh, you know, certainly the value exchange that you talk about there in terms of what the patient's benefits are of a diabetes service, you know, has to be relevant for them. They need to see the writing on the wall as far as their disease progression. Unfortunately, it's too well known to us. So you know, our clinical knowledge is our biggest weapon in that regard of being being able to promote ourselves and moving away from, you know, giving away our core service of advice and wisdom for nothing and actually being paid for it as any other good professional service provider, irrespective of industry, is doing outside of pharmacy. So, you know, there are great examples, you know, that we've come across like uh, Doctor on Demand in, in the US as a telehealth service in, in the medical profession. And, you know, that started out as a fully privatised service and it was only through the large adoption of patients that it became subsidised from health insurance. So, you know, we are going to have to toe that very strong line and drive this if we're going to make it happen. I guess it's just getting to that point of, you know, realising that, you know, this is the direction we need to take if we're going to be sustainable uh, versus to can we hang on to our old model long enough and perhaps are there other opportunities that we could pursue that are a little easier? Mm. Absolutely. And it, for that reason, it's going to be really important that um, people adopting a service model um, do it in a manner that is professional. We are professionals. We are health professionals. We are respected and we need to maintain that respect. Um, 
so we have to make sure that anybody who's putting out a, a service doesn't just, you know, oh, I'm going to do um, something that's really not worthwhile. You know, I, it would be a real shame, and I can't guarantee it won't happen. You know, we are a very diverse industry, and there's going to be people out there who think that something is um, okay to do, and it may not be considered that okay by other people in the industry, as long as it's legal and ethical, I suppose it's okay for them to try, but hopefully they do it in a manner that, that's um, you know, reproducible and not Mickey Mouse, I guess. Mm. But, you know, one of the things we got to make sure of is that those services are, are going to stand up to scrutiny. We don't need um, outside commentators telling us that, well, pharmacy is actually not really um, a great industry because they're doing this particular service and it's shown to be of no value and they're charging patients a large amount of money for it when it shouldn't be. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, as far as quality is concerned, it's really, really important that everybody maintains um, maintains their, um, their ethics, I guess. Yeah, around providing these services, and and, um, I, and I imagine in in terms in terms of that, you know, we can't get it right all the time. Um, you know, even in no. other, other industries, you know, we, we noticed that uh, you know, in episode seventy five with Hillary Khan, we spoke about the Apple Genius Bar, which took three years to gain full adoption. So there had to be yeah. some resilience shown with them, and the same thing goes here. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us are looking for instant results. Um, but you know, I, I think you know, as as you probably shared with us you know not every professional services will work and uh, you know we need to get very good at uh, being able to recognize that but also continue to improve as well yes absolutely and this is one of the things it's okay to make mistakes and in fact it's how we learn you know especially with a new area of the industry like this so when I say you know we want pharmacists to do it right we want them to do it ethically and reproducibly and not provide services that they uh, wouldn't feel is is appropriate. But as far as you know, services not working. This is another really important aspect of providing a service. You have to be able to assess the service regularly. You have to design your KPIs just like you would for a range. Again, this a service you can say as an analogy is very similar to a new line of product, something that you could put your hand on while it's you know more of a cognitive service. So you have to be able to assess it on a regular basis. Look how much this offering the service is costing you, both in actual investment and in opportunity cost, and make a decision. At this point, I'm going to review it. At this point, I'm going to review it again. At this point, I'm going to review it again. And do the continuous cycle of looking at the service, making sure that it is viable, that it's not costing you more than it should. And if it is, you have to make a decision to end it. Um, and that should be okay. You would do the same thing with a failing range in your store, and it's okay to look at a service and say, "Listen, it's really not coping. It's not doing well. It hasn't taken off the way we thought it would." You know, um, and learn from that. You know, ask yourself, look at it at the end. You know, why didn't it work? Um, what about it didn't appeal to your patients? Was it a price issue? Was it them not understanding the importance of the service? You know, were you offering a new family service to a town that's populated with retirees. You know, are you making such simple mistakes that you would do if you were keeping nappies in a store in a town full of retirees? Mm. So anybody putting in a service has to be prepared to look at it and say, listen, it's not working, we have to move on. That shouldn't mean that they never put in a new service again because services are so different um, from each other 
you have to just look at, okay, what didn't work well, what would work well, let's learn from these mistakes and come up with something that would, that would do well to diversify your business because if you, if you can diversify your business, eventually you'll find the right mix and, and you'll start to grow it in the way you want to go. Yeah, and and it really touches on that key point of you know diversifying our businesses. You know, all of our services which we've provided for free have been cross subsidised through government funded uh, supply of medicines for so long, which is now not at a profitable level for us to continue down that pathway. So you know, this cycle of you know testing new services, measuring, learning, reviewing, and testing again, you know, is just something that we have to ingrain into our uh, our DNA because that. Has has, you know, the game has changed in that regard. And uh, I, guess, I guess with respect to uh, game changes, um, you know, what would you see, you know, if we just, you know, have a bit of fun with it and throw the time and resources out the door, you know, what would you see as the biggest game changer that you'd love to see in pharmacies today if we could have those two elements removed? Okay. So there are certainly areas that I think are very promising. And I always look at this from the idea of, pharmacy being a hub for health information and pharmacy being the place for um, like the health, like PSA has got it right when they name their new service for health destination pharmacy. That really is what pharmacy is about. It's a health destination and it's somewhere for people to come and get the right advice on where to go next and what their next pathway should be. So there are some things that I find very interesting, like in um, uh, in Australia, for instance, you've got the, the new DNA services, for instance. And I would really love to see somebody design a model around partnering with those companies that do DNA testing around what medications you metabolise quickly or what medications you metabolise slowly. And you could see somebody being, you know, given the information about, well, this particular statin is not going to be really good for you because you've had this test and it tells you that you should go somewhere else. And being able to give that advice back to the doctor and um, and working with them to collaborate on, okay, well, great, we, we know which is going to get you the best treatment rather than trying this item for a little while and then trying that one for a little while and then finally come up with the right answer. Um, an interesting one that I saw in America that's coming out at the moment is uh, a large uh, association of independent pharmacies has made a, a an agreement with a, with a group that provides... Um, uh, clinical testing of, of blood samples, for instance. So the blood samples are taken by the company. They're like a pathology company, I guess, is the best way to describe them. And the information regarding those tests is available to the patient through their local pharmacy. So they come to the pharmacy and they have a sit-down um, discussion with the, with the um, pharmacist and they can talk about what the results are, actually are. Um, they can provide information to the, to the patient about that and they can advise them on the best place to be going next. Um, now, America's health system is obviously very different from ours. Um, it's a little bit, you know, it's certainly more geared towards private funding for things. So people paying a private price for a service like that there is, is going to work quite well where maybe it won't in Australia where pathology tests are subsidised. But, you know, if you can have patients coming to the pharmacy getting that education about their health, about their medications, about where they should be going next to get advice about their best treatment. Um, that would be a really interesting thing and potentially not only a good revenue stream for pharmacy, which is one thing we've got to consider, but also a good way of saving the government money. You know, if patients are willing to pay a private price or something, um, 
then there's less, you know, for instance, like looking at vitamin D. You know, the government really wants to cut down on vitamin D testing. Maybe there could be a market there for private vitamin D uh, through a pathology lab and the information available through your pharmacy. You know, things like that, I think, are really exciting. And, you know, a lot of point of care testing devices are becoming smaller, more reliable, more affordable, like looking at, say, HbA1c. You know, very soon there will be HbA1c testing um, machines that are available in pharmacies. They're not diagnostic, and, and that's an important thing to understand. These devices are not reproducible enough to be a diagnostic device, but they give you a clue. They can say, listen, this person's got a HbA1c that seems to be two or three higher than it really should be. That's an important thing to follow up. Let's get you to the doctor now. Um, and, and services like that that I think that pharmacy can integrate into a suite of services and uh, charge for and refer on to their doctor, collaborate with the doctor. You know, we get, we get that one area of, of professional um, aspiration, I guess. One, one area that pharmacy really wants to do is to be more collaborative. We want to be included and we want to include other health professionals in our work. You know, a more stable income uh, and use of technology to improve our day-to-day -day, um, running of our, of our business and of our interaction with patients. I think all those things would be really, really good. I just, I think, I'm hoping it's going to happen in the earlier time, you know, within the next five years rather than 10 to 20. Yeah, look, yeah. And, and it's such a strong recognition of the expanded pharmacist role, particularly in primary health care, beyond supply of medicines and looking to see what happens before, you know, if we use diabetes as the example, probably use it a little too much on this show, but, you know, that what happens pre-diabetes, but also what happens in the stages post-diabetes in terms of all of the other, you know, concomitant, uh, you know, medical conditions that can occur if not properly managed and, uh, you know, tools like you mentioned, there with the HbA1c would certainly be highly beneficial for someone who's not going to see a doctor for that particular test and uh, utilising the strength of the uh, community pharmacy network to uh, you know deliver that nationally is certainly a, a great advantage. Jared, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on the show. I know our, our listeners will get so much out of it, particularly if they're early stage in professional services, but also in fine-tuning uh, their offering at the moment in terms of really determining you know, where they're going to take their professional services businesses, you know, here in the six CPA and certainly well beyond and not relying on it. So thank you for joining us and we look forward to following your journey and inviting you back in the not too distant future. Nice. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jared. Well, I've got no doubt that we could feel the proverbial fog lift amongst us throughout that chat with Jared. It's often an area of professional services where there's so much greyness and uh, very much indecision in how we go about it. And uh, often we make mistakes and it's great to hear all the different services that Jared's been involved in. Some good, some fantastic, and some that provide excellent learnings for us moving forward as well. And that's where my three key learnings begin. We 
talked a lot about the de-risking strategy in pharmacy. All of our eggs cannot be in one basket anymore. Our remuneration was purely driven by supply, and we're now getting to that mold now that we need to diversify so that we're not as reliant on one source of income. Otherwise, we leave ourselves open to huge changes and obviously destabilization of our platform that we stand on. So we need to be developing these professional services, whether they exist in the community pharmacy agreement or not. The private professional services, as Jared shared with us, represent large amounts of opportunity. But like anything else that we do in business, we need to be testing it. And we'll get into that in one of the other key learnings as well. Number two is have a look at the different opportunities available to you. There's six PPA services and there's also non-six CPA services. As Jared shared with us, it's our individual pharmacies' roles to come up with new ideas in professional services and go out and implement them as well. He's given us some great frameworks around how to set up the space, what we shouldn't be putting in the space, some tools that we can use successfully, and more importantly, what we can look at in terms of our workflow and the role roles that our people and our team need to play to help us implement them successfully as well. If you can take all of those steps out from the blueprint and just benchmark yourself as to where you're currently at and whether you're doing all of those things, it's a really powerful checklist just to make sure that there might be a few little tweaks and you might get a better result with your professional services Or if you haven't dived into it, I'd say, where have you been? But certainly it's a good opportunity, particularly if you're about to launch into a new professional service to make sure all of those elements are in place ahead of time as well. And the number three is the cycle of improvement. So that we that we need to put in practice for our entire business, but also for little micro businesses. It's very well known within large corporates that they don't innovate very well. But the large corporates, and I'll point you to a book that I absolutely love because it has some great examples of that. And one example is an accounting software that you may be familiar with. You might be heading over to zero like where I am at the moment, but one of the most formidable ones of the past was Reckon or Quicken or QuickBooks as you might remember them. And they were able to innovate successfully within their own company by setting up micro businesses within the big business. And this is where each module of the business had its own resources and had its own dedicated resources of people and money and so forth. And they're able to test new services without having to bring along all the baggage and all of the policies that applied to the larger companies. So where this is relevant, particularly for this cycle of improvement, is that when you start to implement a new professional service, you need to think about providing dedicated resources. And certainly that relies around your team, your money, and also the space in your pharmacy as well to really ensure that you maximize its chance of success. You can't just simply bolt on a professional service without making all those extra provisions that allow you to test the service, measure it, learn from it, review it, and as Jared shared with us, look at the viability on a frequent basis to ensure that it's meeting the needs of your community And I dare say, if it's doing that, it's going to be a viable and profitable service as well. 
And that brings us to our transformation motivational quote of the week, which comes from quite appropriately for the launch of Transformation Magazine issue three, Richard Branson, when he captured the essence of disruptive thinking. And the quote is, one has to passionately believe it is possible to change the industry, to turn it on its head, to make sure it will never be the same again. Absolutely love that one. I think it really captured the essence not only of disruptive thinking, but also of where community pharmacy is right now and what we need to do and the great challenge and opportunity ahead. If you've loved this week's show, leave a comment in the show notes. I read and respond to every single one of them and our guests like Jared today are only too happy to respond to your queries individually or you can hit him up on Twitter at Pharma4, and that's spelled P-H-A-R-M-E-R-F-O-U-R. And he'd love to hear from you. Coming your way next week, we have Sue Muller, the Managing Director and the Founder of the Pharmaceutical Locum Co. And she's going to be sharing with you how you can more successfully recruit new team members without all the heartache, without all the mistakes, to make sure you hire the right person the first time. And she's going to share her best strategies of how you can go about doing it. Just remember, there's been a lot of content in this episode, and I know that particularly if you've been at the gym or you're walking the dog, that there may have been a whole lot of notes that you might want to have taken. And we've done that for you, and that's at the show notes at robertstar.com forward slash episode 83. Have a great week, everyone, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Bye for now.